why we give him a round of applause to the student ministries. So as you saw, I got the privilege to preach uh, to our youth, and I got to tell you, I survived. <laughs> Can you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read verses 11 to 22, or 11 through 22. If you are here with me, could you please say, I'm here. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called and circumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you uh, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we, are, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21. In him, the whole body, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we want to approach your word with reverence. Understanding that it is in the proclamation of your word that our hearts change. I pray, Lord, that by the presence and ministry and person of the Holy Spirit, these words become real to us and transform us in such a way that as a church, we live according to our design. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, you may take a seat. So today we continue with our series based on the book of Ephesians, a series that we have called True Identity. And basically what we have been trying to do is to remember uh, and to apply as a church our union with Christ. To remember that if you are a believer, you died and resurrected with Jesus. And that if you are in him, the only thing that defines you is that you are in him. That's what we have been trying to do. And we have been saying that you are not defined if you are a believer. If you are not defined by your successes or your failures that you are not defined by your morality or your sin, that you are not defined by anything except, except by who God says you are in Jesus Christ. So far then, we have talked about, we have said that in Jesus we are blessed as Christians. 
In Jesus, we are empowered as believers, and in Jesus, we are saved. Today, we're talking about this very important topic that says that in Jesus, also, we are one. Um, and the way we're going to talk about this, and I have three points for you, we're going to talk about uh, one reality and one struggle, one church and one Savior, one aim and one need. By the end of the sermon, I hope that, we under- that you understand why is it that the unity of the church is so important. Now, let's go with the first point, our reality, one reality, and one struggle. Now, if you were here last week when Pastor Rob preached about the first part of chapter 2, you may remember that he gave a whole description of what it means to be a Christian saved by faith. And he says that one of the, the, the only reason why a Christian becomes a Christian or a believer becomes a believer is because of the grace and mercy of God. And that's a beautiful text. But the last verse of that section, I would say verse 10, is an extremely important verse. And I want you to see it here on the screen. It says, for we are God's handiwork. This means that you, in Jesus Christ, you are God's masterpiece. And even before that, as a human being, you have dignity and value. And then he says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, the reason why I wanted to start with verse 10, even though we didn't read that this morning, it was because um, Paul makes it clear, Paul, the writer of this letter, makes it clear that when Jesus saves someone, he saves someone from something, the wrath of God, but also saves someone for something. That's what the text is saying. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. That's why he saves people through the proclamation of the gospel. But also, the gospel is the power of God for transformation, for good works. In other words, if you are a believer, the moment you became a believer, God gave you a purpose, a greater purpose to live for, to live a life of good works. Now, why you start with that? Because what Paul is going to tell us in the section that we just read is that one of the conditions, one of the basic requirements for a believer to be able to live lives of good works is that the believer understands and believes and practices the unity of the church. The reason why I'm saying that is because the whole section we just read is all about that. The central theme of the section we just read is the unity of the church. Why is it that in Jesus we are one? And this is the reason why the first word that you see in verse 11 is the word therefore. Whenever you find the word therefore in the Bible, just by simple grammar, you know that Paul or the Bible is trying to connect two concepts. And Paul is saying to the church, that if you want to live a life of good works, you must believe and you must practice the unity of the church. Did you hear me? Paul says, just in case, Paul says that if you want to live a life of good works, you cannot divorce yourself from the unity of the church. It's impossible, Paul says, to live a life of good works if you don't believe in the unity of the church. I've said it five times already. (laughs) And this is his argument. Actually, this is how Paul is going to make this argument. 
and it starts addressing the Gentiles. Now, just in case you don't know, you might not be familiar with the term Gentile, is anybody that is not a Jew. Therefore, I would say that 99% of the people that are here, including me, we are Gentiles. So Paul is talking to me, and Paul is talking to you. Look at what it says in verse 11. Therefore, remember. Can you say remember? Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, not Jews, by birth and call and circumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised later on. And, I, and there's two things that I want you to see here, two important words. One is the word Gentile because it applies to us, right? But the second one is the word uncircumcised. Now, I hope you know what circumcision means because I'm not going to explain it. It's, it'll be uncomfortable for you, uncomfortable for me. But when the Jews used the word uncircumcised, that was not a good word. It was derogatory. It was disrespectful. That was the word the Jews used to describe those Gentiles. And we know because of history that there was this division between Gentiles and Jews and that the Jews actually hated Gentiles. Actually, and I, I'm quoting here, they believed that the only reason why God created Gentiles, you and me, back in the days, was because he needed fuel for the fires of hell. That's not loving. <laughs> Actually, history tells us that even if you were, let's say, if, if, if someone was having a, a baby, a mother was giving, uh, giving birth, and you were a Jew, you couldn't help that mom having, have that baby. Because if not, you would be contributing and bringing a gent another Gentile into the world. That was the hate between these two. And Paul is saying to the Gentiles, Paul is saying to you and me, remember how much you were hated and remember how divided you were. That's how he starts. And then he continues in verse 12, and he says, um, Remember that in that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. And I'm going to put that, I don't have a lot of time to explain everything here, but I'm going to make a summary of this in a second. Look at what it says, uh, the following verse. You were without hope and also without God. And this is what Paul is saying in my translation. Before your conversion, before you became believers, you were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. And he puts everything under one concept. Verse 13. You were far away from God. This is Paul saying, even before he makes his argument about unity, he says, remember you Gentiles. Remember how much you were hated. Remember how divided you were. And remember that you were far from God. Now, Paul is a good pastor. Therefore, he is not just going to talk to the Gentiles in his congregation. He's going to talk to everybody else, which means the Jews. And in verse 11, he addresses the Jews and he tells them this. When he uses the word, uh, he says, you are the ones that call the circumcision. Those of you that you believe that you are the circumcision. This is what he's saying. And, and when, when Paul is using the term circumcision here, when he's saying the, um, the circumcision is calling you a circumcision, he's telling the Jews this. You thought that you belonged to the family of God because you were circumcised. 
You thought that you believed that you deserved all privileges and blessings and rights that the family of God has. You thought that you were people of hope. You thought that you were near to God, but I want you to remember, and this is the point of this verse, that your circumcision was made by men, not by God. Remember that the reason why you think that you all that, my translation, is because you were circumcised by, guess what? Your circumcision, in a way, does not count, quote-unquote, because he was meant by God, by men, not by God. So this is what Paul is saying to the Jews. If you thought that the Gentiles needed God, I want you to hear this from me, that the Jews also need God. How do I know that? Look at verse 17. It says that the reason why Jesus came here was to preach peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and also peace to those who are or who were near. This is really interesting because when he's addressing the Jews, he says, you thought that you were near and you were just as far. You have forgotten that you were just as broken as the Gentiles were. You must remember that you needed the peace of Christ just as much as the Gentiles needed it. So here's the question. Why would Paul spend all this time making his argument that they were both sinners in need of grace? Why would Paul spend so much time on that? And this is my conviction based on what I see in the text. Because he wanted to put everyone at the same level. You see, part of the issue with the unity of the church is that we think that we are more than other people. See, part of the issue with the, with the unity in the church is that we think that some people are superior and some people are inferior. And Paul is arguing here that it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if we are different ethnically, religiously, and morally. At the end of the day, Everyone has been far of God or away from God in one way or another. Nothing to brag about, nothing to boast about. There in Christianity, there is no superior and there is no inferior. When it comes to humanity, even the people within the church, there is only one type of humans, a sinner in need of grace. And to that, you got to say amen. Now, that was the reality that he wants them to keep in mind. We're we all the same. We have struggled with the same things. We have sins. We struggle in so many different ways. So Paul here is saying, if that is true, why such a hostility? If that is true, why is it that you create, he says to these people, the dividing wall of hostility. And he says the same thing in verse 14 and in verse 16. You know, interesting thing about the word hostility is that it's the same word that we use in other parts of the world in the Bible as enmity. That it's not just that you don't like somebody, but that you push purposely someone away from you. He says, why are you pushing one another? Why are you pushing away one another? You have the same background. Now, I want to argue, church, that whatever these people were struggling with, we still struggle today. 
That's a reality as well. That's a reality and that's our struggle even today. I'm not saying in this church necessarily, but maybe in this church. But I know for a fact that it's a, it's a reality in the church as a whole. So hear, hear me up. The reason why there's hostility and disunity in the church is because we have forgotten that reality. The difference between why there is hostility and disunity among age groups in the church of Jesus Christ is because we have forgotten that reality. This is the reason why the generation X, my generation, and the boomers, the generation that came before me, when we think of millennials, we say things like, oh my goodness, those millennials. But it's the same reason why the millennials look at us and say, okay, boomer, hashtag. <laughs> you see, that's, that's an issue. It's an issue out there and it's an issue in here. The reason why there's hostility and disunity in the church among social economical groups, economic groups, is because we have forgotten of our reality and our struggle. The reason why there is hostility and disunity among the people of God when it comes to political alliances is because we have forgotten this reality and this struggle. The reason why there's hostility and disunity in the church of Jesus Christ among different ethnic groups is because we have forgotten this reality and this struggle. The reason why we got to talk about ethnicity here, people, is because that is the primary issue here. Did you know that, and this proven fact, did you know that today we struggle just as much as 60, 70, and 100 years ago in this country when it comes to ethnicity? Amen. Did you know that we still today apply value to some people more than others? I don't know if you ever heard of this term before. I'm assuming that you have. It's the term implicit bias. And it's this term that is used to explain how we all have, we all have preferences and inclinations. Every single one of us. Implicit bias explains that these, these uh, inclinations and preferences come because of the way we grew up and because of our environment. Implicit bias explains that that's why we assign more value to some people than others. I think that, that that is true. But more than that, I think that it's even more true that the reason why we have implicit bias is because of our sinful nature. Because when sin came into the world, not only we had issues with God, but we started having issues with one another. This is the reason why we, value, we assign value to the color of skin. Listen up, people. This is still true today. Studies show you, even today, that we assign value to the color of skin. Last year, I was talking to one of my friends in, uh, living in California. He's uh, uh, in a biracial uh, relationship. His wife is Latina, he's African-American. And he told me that years ago, when his kids were starting to drive, he told them this, just remember that sometimes people, people will see your color before they see you as a person. Don't you think that we still struggle with that today? See, even as a society, we still assign value to accents. We all have an accent, people. Some people have a really cool accent. <laughs> and some people don't. 
The problem is that as a society, some accents are trustworthy and some accents are not. These are facts. There are tons of studies done explaining this. Did you know that as a society, we still assign value to names? See, a city of Chicago, in the city of Chicago, there was this study done in which they put people of different ethnicities, uh, the same education, the same job experience, everything the same. But the study showed that 50% of the time, a person would not be considered for a job because of the, the way their name sounded. So some companies, what are doing now, is actually requesting uh, or receiving some uh, resumes without names in it. Because they know that this is an issue. This is so interesting. Society looks at that and says, we have to fix this. Because if implicit bias is something we learn, then we must learn how to unlearn it. You know what the problem is, though? That this is not just about learning. It's a heart issue. It's in our heart that we create these differences. It's in, this, it's in our heart that we, create, we have this implicit bias. Therefore, we need the transformation of the heart, not just different techniques, not just different things. Unless the church believes and understands that what we need is a transformed heart, unity is impossible. Now, this leads me then to my second point. Not only we need to understand and believe in our reality and our struggles, but we really, really, really need to believe that we, have, we are one church with one Savior. You must believe that. If you don't believe that, unity is simply impossible. So this is what Paul is saying. To these churches, remember who you were before? But now, remember who you are in Jesus. And he puts it like this in verse 13. He says, but now, can you say now? In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul talking to the Gentiles. And saying, listen, you were far away from God. But now, because of Jesus' work for you on the cross, you are near. Because he took your place on the cross and because he paid the price for your forgiveness, you are near. But look at what, because he doesn't stop there and he gets better. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, uh, the dividing wall of hostility. And this is what Paul argues. That even though we were divided because of what Jesus did, taking our place in the cross, being our peace, now he makes of these two groups one. One. And he gets better. Because he says in verse 15 that his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Notice that he doesn't say an improved humanity. Notice that it doesn't say that he fixed somehow the all humanity. He says a completely new humanity. With a new heart, new affections, new worldview, and new preferences. 
In a way, what Paul is saying, that our new humanity is tied up to our new identity. What Paul is saying is that the solution for this division and this hostility is that both groups become one in Jesus Christ. That because you have a new identity, that automatically makes you a new humanity. But what he makes this passage amazing and so beautiful is that not only he tells you what Jesus did, but it also tells you what we became. Look at here in verse 19. Consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Two phrases to pay attention to there is fellow citizens. This is what that means. That we are different. I mean, look around. We are different. That we have different backgrounds. That we do have different experiences. That we might come from different ethnicities. That we do have different colors. That we do practice or speak different languages. That we do have different accents. That we are actually people of different ages. That we may have even political, different political preferences. But Paul is saying none of that stuff defines us. What defines us is that we belong to heaven. That that's home. That that is my ultimate preference. That if we are one church, it's because we have one Savior that redeemed us, rescued us, purchased us, justified us, sanctified us, loved us, adopted us, and saved us. One Savior, one church, one God, one identity. That's what defines the church. This is the thing. This is what creates uh, unity. Everything else becomes secondary. And Paul doesn't stop there because he calls us members of his household. You know what that means? This is where the word familia comes from. This is the reason why I always say good morning, familia. It's not just because I'm trying to be cool. I am cool. <laughs> it's because it's a biblical concept. He says, we are brothers and sisters, even though we belong to so many different things. Did you know that in the New Testament, you only find the word Christians three times? That, that, shouldn't, be, that shouldn't be the only way we define ourselves. I'm a Christian. Did you know that there are more than 300 times in the New Testament alone, and half of those times... The word brothers and sisters is there to describe what the church is supposed to be. Don't you think that that matters? Brothers and sisters, more than 300 times, at least half of those to describe the church. You know why that matters to me? Because we are not called to be colorblind, people. That's not a biblical concept. We are called to be colorful and to enjoy our brothers and sisters that have a different tone of skin. See, this, this matters to me because it tells us that we're, we're not supposed to ignore our differences. No, 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 no. We're supposed to see and hear our differences. But what the gospel does, though, is that it helps you embrace one another and embrace other people even though they're different because we are family. This is the crazy thing. You don't choose family members. 
I know that some of you would love to choose your siblings, but that's not the case. Our family members are chosen by God. And if that is true, then I don't get to tell you, I love that you're part of my family. But could you please be more like me? No, he tells you that we are a family because he made us a family in Jesus Christ. And if that is true, and it is, if we are family members, then we have to learn how to compromise. We, we must learn how to die to our preferences. We must learn how to sacrifice comfort for the sake of our brothers and sisters. I don't know if you know this, but years ago, about 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, in the missiology world, the people that talk about reaching people for, for Jesus, they said that the fastest and better way to reach people for Jesus was to create a church that, looked, that everyone looked the same. So here in the Chicago area, we have a mega church that reached about 30,000 people and everyone looked the same. I don't mind that. The problem is that that's not biblical. The problem is that the Lord never calls us to just hang around with people like you and me. The problem is that the Bible calls us to compromise for the sake of other people, to put our preferences aside for the sake of people, to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of people. Listen, I have been extremely public about my dislike with macaroni and cheese. Extremely public. It's an American dish I do not understand. I would only eat that if I had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil is tempting me, and then I will eat it. But if you invite me to eat, and you give me macaroni and cheese, and you're not doing it because you hate me, but you're doing it because that's what you had, I'll eat it. You know why? Because it's important to you. And if it's important to you, then it must be important to me. You see, that's what the unity of the church is all about. One church, one Savior. Now, this is one of those sermons that is so easy to preach for me. But it's one of those sermons that is so hard to apply. Because I recognize that I still have implicit bias. Because I recognize that I'm still a sinner. Because I recognize that I'm still, I still have preferences. So, what to do? And this is point number three. We need one aim and one need. This is the aim. Look at verse 20. He's calling us to, be, to build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's Jesus Christ. We Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, there's, there's division among the group saying, what is Paul trying to say? This is basically the summary of it. Paul is saying that the only way the church protects its unity is, be, is when we never walk away from Jesus as our foundation. That he's the one that keeps us together when he becomes the cornerstone. So he's our foundation. In him we stand, and he's the cornerstone. He is the one that keeps us together. Paul says that the only way the church protects and grows in unity is when Jesus and what he did for us in the cross becomes our ultimate preference. The unity of the church 
becomes a reality and we grow in unity when we never forget and always remember that the one that came looking for the foreigner and the stranger was Jesus. That the one that, treat, that was treated like a stranger so we could become a citizen well, was Jesus. That the one that rightly belonged to God, to the family of God, was the same one that for a fraction of time was treated like a homeless so we could be adopted. See, we could never forget and always remember that it's only in him and through him and because of him that we became Christians. When he's our aim, when he's our focus, when he is first, when he came to do for us, he's first. When we are in him, what what the Bible says we are in him, when that becomes first, then everything else becomes secondary. I do have preferences. But I want to think that I want to submit my preferences to Jesus. I want his preferences to be my preferences. I do have biases. But I want, I want to submit my biases to his biases. See, I, I do have dislikes and likes. But I want to submit those to Jesus as well. That's the aim. But look at the need in verses 21 and 22. In him, the whole building, the church, is joined together. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And he tells you that Christian is like a building that is joined together. And we are a worship temple. That Christians are worship temples. Now look at here. Verse 22. And in him, you two are being built together. Stop there for a second. Because he tells you that we are still in the process of becoming what we already are. He tells you that we are all growing into this multi-age, multi-ethnic, multi-social economic, multi-politics, multi-preference temple of worship. Therefore, we need one another. That's the crazy thing about the multi-ethnic church. We recognize that we need one another. That even though we are different, we still need one another. That we best display the glory of God when we are together. That the best way for us to grow is when we are together. So I have two homeworks for you. Number one. How about... If in your life group or in your Bible study or in whatever group you belong to, you start to invite other people that is not like you to be part of your group. Because we can't just talk about this. We must do it. Because the Bible says that this is what the church is. That's the first homework. And the second homework is this. How about if in your groups, Live group, Bible study, or whatever group you're part of. How about if you start thinking as a group, what is it that we can do to create more unity in the church? How about if you think about the things that you must do to grow in unity in the church? See, I never finish my sermons like this. But the reason why I finish this one like this is because as a church, Years ago, we said that we were going to become a multi-ethnic church. And I know that to become a multi-ethnic church is extremely hard. 
It is easier to be all the same. But this is our conviction. And you are part of that. Amen? Can we pray? Lord, we thank you. As always, for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, because we don't have to guess anything. We, it's there. It's extremely clear. You, you're united in Jesus Christ and in one church, the Gentile and the Jews, people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds and different struggles and different experiences. You made of two different people one. Lord, I know that this has been our desire as a church for some years now. And I'm so grateful for the things that you have done in our midst through all these years. Lord, but we want more. We want the church to reflect that more. We want to display your glory in our multi-ethnicity, multi-politics, multi-gender, multi-age, more and more. Please, Lord, by the power of your spirit, please make it happen. Teach us, Lord, how to compromise where we need to compromise. To sacrifice where we need to sacrifice. To put our preferences to the side when we need to put our preferences to the side. That we may see each other as brothers and sisters. Because as Jesus says, the world will know who you are because of how much we love one another. Please make it happen. Please make it happen. In the name of Jesus we pray. The church says...